Hey, welcome back to the podcast. It is Thursday, November 12th, and you are listening to episode 10 on the Abstract Podcast. All right. So to start off episode 10, Colin, let's talk about Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving is an amazing holiday and it's right around the corner and it is right around the corner. I'm seriously looking forward to Thanksgiving this year, maybe more than past years. Mm -hmm. I'm also looking forward to Christmas more. I think it's just, I feel like we need these days. And so I'm really looking forward to them. Yeah, for sure. But I did want to start by saying before we even get into that, that yesterday was November the 11th, which marked Mm -hmm. one year since... Alicia and I got engaged. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it was like a lucky day, one, 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 one. And then she like, she said yes. <laughs> you, you picked the right day. That's right. <laughs> so, yes, proud of that fact. So, Colin, with Thanksgiving coming up, what is, uh, what do you, what do you like about Thanksgiving, the day? The day of Thanksgiving. The, it's like an event. Yeah. The, the best thing about Thanksgiving is the food, I'm convinced. Okay. I, I eat a lot over Thanksgiving and... It is just a whole smattering of some of the best food you can imagine. My favorite's the ham. Um, love a good cooked ham, and I think we're gonna do turkey in the hole as a thanks as a as a family this year. So that always gets a good turkey. Um, sure. But but honestly, a break from from the schedule and rigor of the semester plus good food plus family plus relaxing time. I'm I'm really excited. That sounds awesome. I'm on board with you with the ham. Like. I'm not a big turkey guy. It can be good. Turkey can be good. It just has to be made right. Yeah, it's kind of dry really Kind of overrated. But what we do at my family is like the whole Kaufman, which is like my extended family, we get together, usually have a, like an amazing Thanksgiving mm-hmm. meal with ham, and then we just all hang out and like watch football and just have a great time as a family. Then that evening, we take the leftover ham yep. and my grandma's homemade rolls and we make sandwiches and it is so freaking good. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited this year because we have because because both of my um, both my wife's side and my side we live right in the same area, so we're we're hitting one for like a noonish big feast, and then we got another one in the oh evening my goodness. for a big feast. That sounds amazing. <laughs> so I'm real excited about it. It's gonna be good. It's like pace yourself on eating. And I that's, know that's I know. an amazing thing to have to do. May not be able to walk by the end of the day, but looking forward to that. Yeah, and then Christmas is coming up. Mm-hmm. Like. Today's a crazy day. It's where we're at. It, let's see. My watch says it's 72 degrees yeah. and sunny, and it's going to get to like warm. 75 today. I think the low is like 70, and it's November the 12th. feels it's like insane. spring. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, it needs to get cold because I, I like my holidays when they're cold. You right. just sit inside. And... Well, yeah, I just I think we need Christmas this year Yes. more than I've needed Christmas in a while. Um, Jordan Peterson, he talks a lot about like um, narrative and – uh, archetypal narrative kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I really like the point he makes is that you know, it might not be historical necessarily that, that Christ is born on December the 25th. Mm-hmm. We probably think Christ was born in the spring from what right. I've heard. But it's like, it's very symbolic that like the light, the word comes at the darkest point of the year. Like December 25, it's the coldest, almost, right. maybe not exactly, but darkest point in the season. And that's when Christ comes. I think that's really profound. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot to look forward to with these holidays. So, Hope all of you have have great plans and enjoy enjoy your holidays as well. James, we dive right in. We got several things to talk through. We're going to talk about we're going to talk a little bit about politics to start off um, because it's what you do right now, um, and then we're going to talk about information and social media and um, a whole host of other things within those topics. So, Absolutely. 
Jamin, let's talk about what we learned from from voters. Um, again, we've read a lot about how you need to be careful how far you take exit polls at this point, just because some of the things are are still um, so so um, in there. Yeah, if I can just ask a question for yeah. the audience, maybe and for me, what what is an exit poll? <laughs> Essentially, it's just uh, it's it's just analyzing the demographics of who voted what. So, how. are you asking people how they voted once they leave the poll, or are you actually taking the stats from the machines of the polls? Uh, well, I know there's both, but the surveys would have more to do with uh, interviewing the the voters. Okay. And then the exit polls have more to do with the actual demographics. So it'd be like, I don't know if they go to the poll, but somehow they mm-hmm. reach out to these voters after they voted, and then they take a sample and extrapolate. Yeah. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, so let's go through this. Uh, David Brooks, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. David Brooks wrote an article, and yeah, some interesting things to take from the election looking at exit polls. Yeah, and uh, he makes a couple um, broad points, and I'd be curious to, if you've had any takeaways thus far from from how you've seen people vote and things like that. And again, these are all kind of preliminary and a little bit unreliable, but still go ahead and make some vague generalizations. Um, but what David Brooks says that I think I would just read just a little something from the piece. Um, he wrote this in the New York Times, um, but he he talks about at the beginning. One of the one of the big things that we've learned that he thinks we should learn from this election, um, and he thinks that voters told us is that we need to separate church and state better. Um, and he says we've long had political polarization in this country, and we still will. But over the last few years, the polarization has transmogrified into something worse. It is um, transmogrified into a religious war. Transmogrified is probably the best word I've heard yes. this week. It always takes me back to uh, Calvin and Hobbes, um, where he has his transmogrifier box. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's, you learn a lot from Calvin so and Hobbes. So what does he say at transmogrify? You said religious? Yeah, he, ta- he says that politics has become a religious war in which we find our meaning and purpose in, in Trumpism or wokeism, um, as he puts it. Yeah, I think I think that's actually a really good way to think about it, at least from my perspective, what I've been seeing. Um, I remember I took a sociology class and talking about what it means to think religiously, like what, Mm -hmm. because we tend to just think of, oh, going to church religion, but that's not really the way the term gets used. So you can also think of something like a football game as almost, or a concert as a religious experience, because you find yourself, if you're the home team, (laughs) surrounded by thousands of people wearing Mm -hmm. the same colors as you, screaming for the same outcome as you. And like, I mean, what can compare, right? Like we haven't been able to go to concerts for so long. I really miss it. But there's Mm -hmm. nothing that compares, in my opinion, to standing at a concert in front of a band. They're singing one song. Everybody's united, having the same feeling at the same time. And like, I think we can say that is a religious experience. Right. And so if if we think of politics kind of in the same way, like it's about identity and about identifying. I mean, you don't want to push it too far. It's not like cultish maybe. But it can be. It yeah. can be for sure, but it's it's not really about values anymore so much. Mm-hmm. It's about caught up in a rush. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the most helpful definition of religion was by a, um, oh, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, but he's a social scientist, I believe. But he, he essentially just boiled it down to religion is that which you hold of ultimate value. Um, so then yeah. in that way, it can be a concert. It can be, you know. Yeah, and then whatever. like when we see this language of good and evil getting put into politics, mm-hmm. it's it's not really any longer about representation, right? It's about war. Right. Side versus side. And yeah, I think that's very evident in the language we see being used all over the place. Yeah. And he writes that um, Trumpism and wokeism are not equivalent phenomena. 
Um, he would not equate the two, but he says they both serve as secular religions for their disciples. Yeah, sure. Um, they offer a binary logic of good and evil, a cult-like membership experience, uh, apocalyptic or utopian visions, witch trials for excommunication of the impure, <laughs> and the sense of personal meaning that comes while fighting a holy war. I thought that was a yeah, man. I think great that's paragraph. that's really true. Wow, there are these like deeply religious <laughs> symbolic experiences that are happening in the language mm-hmm. we're using and what we're doing to the people who don't agree with us. Right. The way we're um, like I think fantasizing is the right word. If like in the term of fantasy, like the way that right. we see our ideal as a fantasy, yeah, that's really, really interesting. So and he concludes. He says the key to moving forward in a better way is loosening the grip um, that culture war has had on our politics and governance. Let's fight our moral difference with books, sermons, movies, and marches, not with political coercion. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's been the whole thing, whether it's COVID, whether it's mass, whether it's civil unrest, like you're, you're trained in such a hardened culture war mentality um, that, that everything is interpreted in that light. And I think that's a lot of the, the mess we've made of our politics is just because of that. So he says, just loosen that grip, separate the church and state, he says, is one of his big takeaways. But yeah, use that as kind of a springboard. Run through. Yeah, I want to just say yeah. something really quick on that. Uh, I have it written down. I'm good on you. You got your notes with you. Yeah, right. Um, one one really interesting thing when we think about um, like being a Republican or being a Democrat and and the narrative that you're buying into, like the the part of the identity, and when we think about how we make sense of the rest of our lives in light of these narratives, so like whether it be Christianity or being from the South or being a college student or being a Democrat or being Republican, um, a narrative is more powerful the more it's able to account for experiences. So the more experiences that a narrative can account for, the more powerful it is. And so as Christians, our goal is to integrate all of our lives under the umbrella of the Christian narrative. So like, I think... And this is what I think it means to work as for the Lord and not for men. Like you understand the whole of your effort and your experience in light of the Christian understanding, the Christian Mm -hmm. faith. But I mean, it's not unique to Christianity, right? Like Buffalo Bills fans (laughs) probably like understand like a lot of their experience underneath the narrative of being a Buffalo Bills fan or being a Clemson fan or being a college student. So Mm -hmm. the more, the more experience a narrative can account for, the more powerful it is. And I think what we're seeing, we talk about religious kind of language being put on um, MAGA or wokeness or whatever. It's, these are super powerful narratives. And that's why everything becomes a zero sum game, right? Because to to give in or compromise in any way is to to deny the savior, right? Like it's heresy. Yeah. Yeah, It is, it is to deny a religious conviction, which is, which is a, a huge thing. I mean, I think that's why you have people who would literally rather, go without food than wear a mask into a grocery store, right? Because it would be a, it would defile their conscience in a religious way to put on a mask. Yeah, exactly. Um, Run through a couple things that I think we learned. Um, I'm going to run through a couple things that I think that we learned from the way America voted. I think first off the fact that Joe Biden got the popular vote Again, some of that's contested, but, but Joe Biden has the presidency (laughs) and he has the popular vote. And I, I think that is just simply there was not as clear, uh, you know, all the talk about how this election was simply going to be a repudiation of Trump. Proved right. Not true. It was a slight repudiation of Trump. Um, and but but by and large, 
it was found that Trump was unacceptable as as president of the United States. Um, I well, think, I mean, yeah, yes kind and of. no. Um, you you don't. He didn't lose any of his faithful. Right, um, and that's what kind of I guess surprised me is Trump did not lose the faithful at all. Yeah, and I think that's what the polls were wrong, but the polarization was right <laughs> yeah. um, in that there's a very small segment of people who swing the votes in certain swing states and. It was them that made the decision that Trump was unacceptable because you had the blue that was going to go blue, you had the red that was going to go red, and you had the small segment that's going to go either way, and they went blue um, because I think they found that Trump was unacceptable. So, again, it was not a big repudiation of him at all. Yeah, um, and I, I also think it's interesting to think about, like, the, the margins were close for sure. Right. But this is the first time that an incumbent president who's only served four years has been voted out in, like, who was the last uh, one? It's been a while, right? Yeah, it's been a bit. So, I mean, uh, mid 1900s, I think. Yeah. So, even even that fact, like, it was mm-hmm. a close election, but usually incumbent races are not very close or not this close. Yeah. And so, I think that goes to one of my, my first big points is that what I think it was a repudiation of was of an unchecked, unvarnished progressivism. And I say that yeah. because you have mm-hmm. a president who is like Trump and you eke out a victory. That means there is something seriously wrong with your platform that you need to reconsider. And you're talking about Democratic platform. Yeah, Yeah. with the Democratic platform. If with the kind of president that Trump has been, you couldn't even get a clear repudiation because of how your platform is out of touch with the American people. Yeah, and you've seen... You've seen the American people vote Trump out mm-hmm. of office, but not vote um, Republicans right. out of the Senate. That's what you saw. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Great point. And and I think, you know, to the my second thing was that the simplistic narratives that we hold um, were largely proven wrong. You had white males were the major ones who moved. Again, this was all a few percentage points, but the movement that that did happen, white males moved left while minorities moved right. Um, yeah. <laughs> which, again, it, it which I'll—, I'll that takes me right to my third point. What I think this shows to the Democratic Party is that you actually have to work for black and brown votes. Um, I think there was this assumption that because they, you know, were more um, involved in, in any kind of anti-racism movements and because they care about more open borders, they filtered that into that. They assumed that a black and brown voter is a single issue voter and all he cares about is either immigration or anti-racism. Um, and so they, they had this simplistic narrative, and I think a lot of us did, um, in that they would just—they didn't have they didn't campaign much to the minorities. Um, and, and I think that was—I think, politically speaking, they made a, a big mistake there and lost a lot of—lost a lot of their voters. Um, yeah, just—we can move on, but, like, um, even looking like, you know, Donald Trump right before the election campaigning hard in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Like, that is just not something that you would expect from a Republican nope. having to— and I mean, he needed to because yeah. Georgia's up in the air, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of how Trump got Florida was was through his appeal to especially Cuban voters um, and Hispanic voters there. Yeah, I thought that was interesting um, too. Which is really fascinating. And I think that has a lot to do with, um, you know, there was, a, there was someone within the Democratic Party that said, we have to stop using language that is any way associated with socialism if we want any hope of gaining um, the Hispanic vote. Which People because, have been from Venezuela or yeah, Cuba. Yeah. They're coming from places where socialism is, is the name of the game. It has and not done well. No. And, and so they're looking for a place where they can, uh, you know, America looks really good to them. Um, and a place where they actually have a lot more opportunity than they would have. And so they're not going to vote for the Yeah, Democratic that kind Party. of language in the Bernie Sanders kind yeah. of rhetoric is not going to do and well. And I think Biden did not do a good enough job trying to distance himself. Yes, he, he, he beat out Bernie Sanders, who, was a, who is an outspoken socialist. But, you know, that's not a clear enough 
pushback or repudiation of the socialist yeah. part of your Democratic but man, Party. Like, it's just, it's such a tightrope because, I mean, you had so many, at least from what I've read, you've had a lot of liberals who, like, they vote for Biden, but they're like, he's not nearly liberal enough for yeah. us. Like, you, like to be a candidate, you're you're preaching to these different people, but right. you have to try to not contradict yourself too much, but also make everyone happy. Like, Which I'm going to go on a limb and say that Joe Biden breathed the sigh of relief when he, see, when he saw that the the Republicans held the Senate. Because I don't think he's on board with the far left of the Democratic Party. He's definitely, he's not, okay, I want to preface that by saying, I don't think he's a moderate. He's a moderate inside the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. But the Democratic Party has shifted enough left, I would not, no longer call him what we generally consider yeah. a moderate. But I think he breathes a sigh of relief. For one, he has experience working, working with Mitch McConnell. Him and Mitch McConnell are friends. Oh, okay. And secondly, it gives him an alley to get out of some of the more crazy, you know, stuff from the far left when you say, like, well, it's just going to get blocked. You know, I can't do that. We can work and try to work with them for some of these small Mm -hmm. movements, but it keeps him from having to get to this unchecked progressivism that I don't think he's on board with. Um, And that 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 is why some of his base was upset with him because he was not far left enough. Yeah. So anyway, that's. Uh, a quick run. I don't need to go through all these, but a couple other things. Um, Andrew Yang had a great thing, um, a great little blurb. He said the Democratic Party, in the eyes of the Republican Party, um, is playing the role of the coastal urban elites who are more concerned about policing various cultural issues than improving their way of life. And he says that's a lot of the reasons why the Democratic Party lost voters. Mm. Um, David Brooks had another point, um, not in this article, but elsewhere. He said there's a messaging problem from the parties. Um, and he said, quote, our job in the media is to capture reality so that when voice so when reality voices itself, like last night in the election, people aren't surprised. Pretty massive failure. We still are not good at capturing the rightward half of the country. And what he mean by that is a lot of people were surprised that it was such a close race. Um, yeah. Thought it was going to be clear. So he says, you know, for a messaging standpoint, we have to do better at capturing the rightward half of the country. Um Social conservative ideals are not losing, I don't think. Uh, free market, um, low taxes, open economy, even somewhat of traditional values. Yeah. Is, yeah, it's it's not losing ground sure. as fast as we We kind of had a brief conversation about this before we started recording. And I think I, I would accept that point with a caveat, like social, I mean, conservative values, at least economic values are right. not losing. But I mean, I think... <sighs> I think they are compromising. When you right. put someone like Trump in office, I, I think I think they are compromised at least like a, a real traditional conservative value when you, when you put someone vulgar like mm-hmm. that in office. But to your point, like when Republicans keep the Senate and when Trump runs a super close race, I, I think the point is taken, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that was just exemplified even by the Hispanic vote again. Um, to have They want the chance to be able, you know, as we talked about their fears of socialism, but then even if you think of them starting out, uh, you need that free market to get your business going. Uh, a lot of them have small businesses in Florida. Right. The demographics for that are large. Um, and they're wanting as as open a possibility as as can be for them to try to get over the hump for their business. So um, anyway, and so I think, you know, one, one positive is I think the future of the GOP potentially is a multi-ethnic working class populist social conservatism that could maybe <laughs> hopefully do away. I think Trumpism is here to stay for a while, but hopefully it can slowly start weeding that out and becoming just, you know, more of more of the the working class. Yeah, I mean if you're and if you're getting if you're getting those minority votes, mm-hmm. it yeah, it wouldn't have to be 
the the demographics might not shake out like they always have in the right. past. Just and we say they got the minority votes. Like majority, More. they didn't. They <laughs> just moved that way a right. little bit. They're sure. still not voting as much for that party. And so, but I would just say, yeah, polarization ruled the day. Um, there wasn't as clear of repudiation of Trump. And I do think without COVID, Trump wins. Yeah. I yeah, absolutely. If it wouldn't have been for that, he's got the election. So one thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is just the profound hypocrisy that we've seen from, um, what do you want to call them, like pundits. media influencers? Yeah. <laughs> pundits? Yeah. So we've, we've been seeing a few videos that people yeah. have done the work of going back and getting people – I'm. I'm I, the ones I've seen have been more Republicans, but I'm I'm sure it's been both. It's been both sides, yeah. Um, but like, you, you'll just have like a side by side of Sean Hannity talking in 2016 and Sean Hannity talking in 2020, and what he's accusing Democrats of doing in 2016 is exactly what he's saying in 2020, and there's just person after person after yeah. person just doing the same thing. There's one of Hillary Clinton the other day. The thing she yeah, said that, in yeah, 2016, it was yeah, exact opposite in 2020. Yeah. Yeah, like she was leading a charge for like a recount. There's been massive yeah. interference in the election, recount, all this stuff. And like on this side of it, everything's secure and everything's fine. And it's just like if you lose or if you win. But one one thing yeah. that's really reminded me of is um I know I've mentioned it several times, but this book by Daniel Kahneman or Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, he has this term in the book called Econs. And I just want to read the definition here. A term created <clears throat> Um, by behavioral economist Richard Thaler, which describes the way that economists view people. Econs are always rational, always selfish, and unchanging in their taste. Kahneman argues throughout the book that people generally do not operate like econs. This term is often used in opposition with humans, the way that psychologists view people. So the idea here is that um, I think I think in the past people have based like economic models and advertising analysis off of the, what they would call econs. And that means that they expect people to behave the same across a, spa- a space of times. So like if you had these interests on Monday when presented with the advertisement, on Friday when presented with the advertisement, you're going to have the same interest. And like, it's almost like a mathematical equation. You plug this in, this is what you're going to get. But what Kahneman and his research have shown is that people are not econs. And that's what came to mind when I'm um, looking at these media pundits. Like you give them the same result, but from mm-hmm. a different, pers- like a different yep. party, they're going to give you a completely different perspective. Like they're not trustworthy, rational, or unchanging in their tastes. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's just, it's not just news pundits. It's all yep. of us, but we're not, we're not that rational. No, nope. And uh, more could be said, but uh, yeah. That changed for me the way I thought about that a lot through um, Jonathan Haidt's work. He's a social psychologist, um, but he has he has a couple the the Righteous Mind um, a book and then the Coddling of the American Mind. Anyway, you can check out more of that stuff. But he basically argues the same thing: we're not quite as rational as we think, and we're driven by a different kind of um, motivating factor. But yeah, all that I think for some I think other that time. conversation we're having about this like a religious analysis of the election. Yeah. I, I think that actually goes a long way in explaining that. But yeah. Um, let's move on to our next topic, but betw- before we do that, a quick word from our non-sponsor. My name is Corey Steiner, and I play music and write the occasional song, and I have the opportunity this winter to do something that I've wanted to do for a very long time, and that is to play Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God Christmas album live. I have a great group of friends and fellow musicians who are super talented, and they're going to help me pull this off. We'll be playing kind of a two-part show, the first part being... Of my own songs as well as traditional Christmas songs and then in the second half 
we will play the Behold the Lamb of God album as close to note for note as we can play it. And that album starts with Moses and works its way through the history of Israel to the, the story of Jesus. We'll be playing three straight nights from December 18th to the 20th. On the 18th, we'll be at Foothills Community Church in Tryon, North Carolina. On the 19th, we'll be at Shiloh Mennonite Church in Due West, South Carolina. And then we'll wrap it up at my home church of Foothills Fellowship in Westminster, South Carolina on the 20th. All shows start at 7 p.m. and this is not a ticketed event. It's all general admission seating and there will be a love offering taken just to help with some of the travel expenses and that kind of thing. And you can find more information on my Facebook page and that's at Corey Steiner Music on Facebook. We would love to see you there. Colin and I are both planning to attend at least one or two of Corey's shows. We're really looking forward to that. I think it's going to be a really good time. I know they've been working really hard to prepare that, and I'm looking forward to the music. First concert all year. Yeah, Can't I'm, I'm going to be out there with a, a camera, yeah. light flashing back and forth like a lighter. What do they have on Mosh Pit? That's my question. Yeah, hopefully. Um, okay, so Javen, you've been doing some some reading, and you had some really interesting stuff um, that you should talk about in regards to social media and, and politics and narratives. Anyway, give us a skinny on, on what you've been reading with that. Yeah, so been doing some study um, for class about the way that social media affects us. I don't even know if I would say affects us, but the role that social media is playing in our lives and what it's doing to our landscape. So this article that was really interesting, um, written by <laughs> a guy with a first name, Peter, last name S-U-C-I-U. I don't know how to say that. Susu? And it's written for Forbes. He titled the article, Does Social Media Make the Political Divide Worse? So I want to read down through a bit of this. I thought it was really interesting. According to a recent survey, 71% of a Respondent said social media companies such as Facebook have an obligation to fact-check political ads. Um, also found that 73% of U.S. adults would like to see social network ban all political ads on the platform. And I guess one reason I thought this was interesting is in kind of my social media circles, I'm seeing what appears to be a large push to go to these actually alternate mm -hmm. networking sites. So like Parler seems to be a big one. Mm -hmm. um, this thing called MeWe as like these alternatives to Facebook and Twitter. And I'm still kind of sorting through how I feel about that. I feel like it's, mm, the, I don't know, kind of noble, but I don't think, like, you're not going to take down Facebook. And I, I don't think Facebook is a great force for good in our world. I, I really don't. It's it's what we have. I think there's been enough to show that, I mean, a lot of people that I really trust will just come out and say Facebook is evil. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think there's stuff to say about that. But I don't know that the answer is going to a site where there's, I mean, people are leaving in the name of free speech. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want anything fact-checked. I don't want anything taken down. And like, that sounds kind of good, but like, you're also going to be probably seeing things you really don't want to see when there's no limit. Mm -hmm. I mean, For sure. I, and I don't just mean opinions like pornography. Yeah. Just, I don't know. It's no offenses might not be the greatest idea. I want to go ahead and get back to this article. So social media is a contributing factor to the political divide in our country, says Dr. Nathaniel Ivers from Wake Forest University. It is hard to know, however, if social media is helping to widen the rift or just making salient how deep and broad the divide already is. The article goes on to claim, Today more and more people are getting their daily news from social media. But the goal of social media companies isn't to act as news organizations, and as a result, this can help spread bias through the dissemination of news. 
Okay, and so then that was kind of introduction. This is the part that I thought was actually really interesting. Facebook's proprietary news recommender algorithm. So the, the algorithm that kind of gives you what you're going to see hmm. most likely combines collaborative filtering, filtering that identifies similar news items with support for the... Okay, maybe this isn't what I thought it was. Okay, here we go. Sorry. Facebook's algorithm has learned from its data that giving people who lean to the left or the right news that's a little more in the same direction than they're already leaning deepens engagement and maximizes the time spent reading news and advertisements. So the political divide deepens one news story at a time. And so what this means is that what Facebook recognizes is that people, you know, they have their bias or where they like the kind of the circle they like to operate in. This is the this is kind of the the section of news I like to get a little bit right leaning, a little bit left leaning. And what it finds is that giving you things that are more in the center are not going to hold your attention, but giving you things that are more on the edges is going to get more engagement from you. And so, what I mean from an economic business standpoint, what what they right. want to do is give you. I mean, it's all about engagement. It's all about attention, viewing time, um, the the length of time you'll spend watching a video. And so, what they want is revenue from ads. And so, the ads they show you are going to pull you farther and farther away from that middle. And that middle voice just gets drowned out, I think, is is the theory that's being proposed here. Um, quote. I, yeah. Go, well, or yeah, go ahead. Only about 10 to 20 percent of all users make up 80 to 90 percent of all social media content about politics. And I can guarantee you those 10 to 20 percent are not people who are what we would call centrists. Right. These are the people far left and right who are mm -hmm. genera generating right. all of this 80, 90 percent of content. That's what's getting our engagement. And what we're seeing is just this disintegration of that middle ground. Right. And, and I would wonder, um, like, what part geography plays plays into this, like outside of social media, like um, has social media contributed to like if you looked at the geography for the election, like the geography was one of the clearest markers. Like you just live physically in areas with people who think the same as you. Um, like that's by and like people who vote. Most of the counties that voted Republican weren't like you know fifty five forty five or whatever else. It's vast, vast, vast majority. And so not only are you not coming into contact with any viewpoints that might challenge you or move you towards the center or towards the opposite spectrum. But you're also, in, in, in most of your everyday interactions, you'll probably encounter people who will do the same thing. Um, and so I'm just curious if there's, you know, what the correlation is. Yeah, there. absolutely. Another article I have here, How Social Media Divides Us, written by Rajiv Vinokoda. Um, this was written back in 2017 for Aspen Institute. He says, strong community institutions, which would be things like churches, schools, provided the scaffolding for individual members to build social capital and climb towards the American dream. Churches, unions, and other community organizations were the platforms used to interact, not Facebook or Twitter. Community organizations still exist and continue to help members climb, but there are fewer of them and fewer Americans are participating in them. And so I think this is what you're talking about. We, we just don't have... Like there, there was a book wrote, written called Bowling Alone, and like the mm -hmm. idea is that we just we don't go bowling anymore. We don't mm -hmm. we don't use these social institutions that we used to to find community. And I've also been reading and hearing things about how just in rural areas, it's just becoming less diverse. If you're right. not conservative, you just move to the city, and if right. you are conservative, you're surrounded by people who are conservative. Right. Yeah. You you won't find any um, 
you won't find many rural liberals nor urban conservatives. Yeah, and it's um, the same thing in the city. Like, yeah. if you are conservative, you just tend not to live there anymore. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, that that's it's it's very troubling. And I there was um I, I keep thinking of this study. It was done in the late '90s. I can't think of who did it. Um, but a psychologist in which he had like this group together of these brilliant people and they had to, they had to somehow think through this scenario or whatever else. And I I forget all the variables of it, but basically they put in this guy, um, who for lack of a better term was just really dumb. Like they put in a really dumb person in that group and the group performed so much better when they had this really dumb person in the group than when they didn't. Why? A lot of it was because he asked the obvious questions that they hadn't. It, it forced them to to work through their thoughts and opinions in a deeper level. Like just a simple question: Why? Why? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Why are you saying that? Um, just simple questions like that that just even subtly challenged the way they were thinking, and and the general scope that they approached a problem with. That general just the, the simple diversity there, you know, challenged that made them better. And and I think that's that's a troubling trend here. Okay, so, you know, what you were talking about from a geographical perspective, and from what I've read and heard, it seems like rural areas are becoming less uh, left-leaning or whatever. Mm-hmm. Cities are becoming less right-leaning. So, I mean, I take that point, and that seems to be the case, but I also can't shake the feeling like 50 years ago, I mean, were, were we more diverse or were we were, did we go to church with people who all agreed with us? Because what I see happening in social media is that your community is no longer formed by the people geographically next to you. So, right, so like the people that I'm maybe having a lot more interaction with me might live in Washington or Virginia or South mm-hmm. Dakota or whatever. And that becomes kind of my community. And those those voices might be completely different to the ones who are geographically next to me. And so my community is built from a much larger range of people. And so then I no longer identify with the people sitting next to me. And this might be why like going to Thanksgiving, you know, people are saying Thanksgiving this year is going to be more heated than ever around the Mm -hmm. dinner table. So kind of balancing these two things, because I think, um, I won't (laughs) say it word for word, but like, right. We used to have that, that, um, kind of, saying those dang Yankees. Mm-hmm. That's not the word they actually right. use. But it just, you know, it was, it was like, you're not from around here. You're from yeah. up there. And it was like this very geographic thing. You're from up north of that Mason-Dixon line. But now it's like, in some ways, those people are also among us because they're experiencing narratives and community on social media. You don't need to be next to that anymore. So I'm trying to reckon these two things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it'd be curious, even if you think... I mean, kind of to go full circle a little bit, if you think religiously and in the 60s, the way that um, white conservatism got tied to GOP, Republican Party. um, Yeah. Just historically. And still is. And still is. Yeah. But that was, you know, the wedding primarily happened in the 60s. Um, But you think of that, so so that made to where, I'm just curious how that would factor into all of that because you know, a majority of urban areas are still, you know, white, middle-class, conservative. Um, and, you know, to which I would be curious if you go back beyond the 60s, you know, um, in a very non-technological age, like what what did the world look like that then in regards to how, how you approach life and, and your politics and how much did your neighbor really think the same as you? Yes, um, so that... 
I don't know if it was in the articles I was mentioning here, if it was just in a different article that I was reading. But the question is, is social media deepening the divide Mm -hmm. or is it just presenting us with what's always been there? And I mean, the answer has to be both. But I've really personally experienced that second thing. It's just it's showing us what actually is there. And, you know, I think if we're honest, we we read things from our neighbors on social media. And sometimes we're like, I liked you better before I knew what you thought about that. You know what I mean? And like in a a very real sense, we were actually able to live at peace before we started philosophizing about racial justice. And it's not to say that those conversations shouldn't happen, but when they do happen, we disagree and it's hard to live at peace and it's hard to to think about that person. You know what I mean? Yeah. And with social media, you, you will have to, you know, philosophize about an event that happened halfway across the country that you would have never known about 50 mm-hmm. years ago. And you're having, you know, not just an opinion, but a, a really deeply held opinion, especially when you tie that into what we were talking about, um, how, how it's functioning as a religion. Yeah, now. it's tied. Yeah. yeah. And when we tie our, when we tie our, <laughs> when we go so far as to, to talk about in church or from the pulpit, we'll talk about the evil of one party or another. And I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, just cementing those two things together, this politics as religious experience. And anyway, I think this conversation leads into what you wanted to talk about as information versus yeah, wisdom. We'll quick finish off here. Um, uh, Brett McCracken wrote, uh, he's a writer, editor, pastor. Anyway, he wrote a little something on his blog and then elsewhere, I think he wrote it, it's on the Gospel Coalition. Um but it's basically he. The title was "Wisdom Lost in Information," and he makes the case that um, quote the irony of the information age is that the more access we have to an unfathomable amount of information and accumulated accumulated knowledge, the less wise we seem to become. Um, and basically, he makes the case that we have a lot of information, but we lack a triage for making sense of it and synthesizing mm. it. Yeah. Um, and. And he makes four main points. He says, information and wisdom are not the same. You can have a lot of the former and little of the latter and vice versa. And his second point, exposing your mind to too much information erodes your wisdom. His third point, we need wisdom in order to navigate a world of too much information, sifting through fact and fiction, truth and falsehood, bias, spin. Um, It's complicated just to try to get accurate or to try to at least feel like you have an accurate reading on the news. Right. and wisdom is both harder to gain but more necessary than ever in an information overloaded world. And so he says, you know, um, he just makes the point that this is the age we live in. And as um, especially as, as, a, as a Christian, we need to start making sure we are shaped to be trustworthy, wisdom-giving sources. We should um, be pointing to people in that direction as well. Um, and he just said that he's just inc- he's convinced that media habits— are such a serious discipleship matter um, in how we get, um, you know, a lot of our news from, you know, Facebook groups or whatever else. Um, and those are really shaping how we engage and talk with each other. I was, it doesn't really get around to having a, a you know, a great help for it. Besides yeah. he basically, there's a problem here. He puts a shameless plug for his book. Um, <laughs> he's, he's got one coming out. Um, in 2021, I believe, um, the wisdom pyramid, but in which he talks about how to try to live, um, where you can sift through some of that information while at the same time taking the time to synthesize and, and work through it. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think, 
I think me and you, well, it, it varies on personal experience, I guess, but like our generation, the, the 20 some 24 mm-hmm. year olds, like we're, we're media saturated and like we are experiencing a deluge of information at a rate we cannot possibly hope to process well. But I think even, I think the, the kids 10 years younger than us, I think, I think they're getting in a hundred or 200% even more than we are. And so I think it's like, when is the breaking point? Like, or is there one? But at some point, like, are they the ones or are we the ones who decide like, mm-hmm. okay, we've got to, we got to actually go about doing life differently. Right. Like this amount of information, knowing what all of my friends are doing at all times, posting Instagram stories every hour of the day, always liking my friends posts or they'll get mad at me. Always, always, always like, do we, do we ever kind of move away from mm-hmm. that and unplug? I think that'll be interesting to see. And we were talking about, um, I wanted to put a plug in for the, the latest Holy Post episode. Uh, I had it pulled up here. Episode 430 on the Holy Post, the politically homogenous church with Ryan Burge. But just talking about like what this younger generation, which is us somewhat, mm-hmm. what, what we believe and like what implications it's going to have for the future. I think social media with, with the way we believe, there are shifts coming. I think it's going to be so interesting to see what plays out. Yeah, and to see if we do just completely, you know, put the a hands-off approach to, to Silicon Valley in which where there's always, you know, newer and and more intense ways of gaining information, whether that's about friends or about information, whatever it is. But like you say, I think, I don't know how you don't get to a place where there's eventually has to be a breaking point if we want to remain healthy, um, uh, especially mentally. Um, but, but, but yeah, I think it's, it's very true that our generation is the ones who it is a deluge of information Mm -hmm. that is constantly, um, bombarding us. And to know the, I think the next front, one of the big frontiers of the church is, is to move forward and to, um, find ways to where you can disciple alongside the amount of discipling that happens from your social media and your news sources. Yeah. I mean, something I've heard from not one, but multiple pastors is I get my congregation for an hour on Sunday, Fox news or social media, CNN, Facebook Mm -hmm. gets them for the other, however many hours there are in the week minus one, you know? Right. Yep. Yeah. And it, it will be an interesting pathway. Yeah. So, I mean, the the church can step into those and try to try to be in those spheres somewhat, whatever that would look like. But then also maybe at the end of the day, the onus is on the people to, to kind of plug back into who are we talking about churches, bowling leagues, softball leagues, community organizations with mm-hmm. real people and real time and find more energy from that. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe this maybe, you know, on a little bit of a positive note, we talked about the, the separation of geographically from how you think, you know, but social media can be the thing that, you know, if you are a liberal in the rural um, United States or if you're a conservative in urban, like it is a way for you to tie in with a somewhat of a sense of community in, um, you know, we could talk about the goods, good or bad aspects of that. But in some ways you can be tied. You're not as um, relegated by your geographical boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have meaningful interaction even through some of these platforms with people who, you know, you can feel more at home with or at least not as ostracized or on the outside with. So there's at least a small positive there. I w- Maybe if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. I also wanted to mention that in the show notes is going to be our Google document, which is what me and Colin just collaborate with, and we throw everything we're going to be talking about into that. 
and a whole lot more. So if you're interested, um, right below where you're listening to the episode, you'll probably be able to find the show notes. But there was this, this interview that David Bowie did, and I think it was in the 70s. And this guy was asking him about this new thing called the internet. It might not have been in the 70s. David Bowie, like the singer? Like David? the singer, David oh, well, Bowie. Okay. And I, I just remember he was, just the way he was talking about it just baffled this this um, guy who was doing the interview. And the guy was like, isn't it just like another tool that like gives us some more access to things? And Bowie was like, no, like it is going to change everything. Like yeah. social interactions, the way media is consumed, the way we do art. He was like, everything is going to change. And it was just amazing, like just this prophetic word. And he was so incredibly right. I'll put that in there if I can find it. With that, we will close off episode 10. Thanks for hanging with us. We'll see you next week.